Well, welcome and good evening. Uh, welcome to RUF, or Reformed University Fellowship. Um, most of you know, but if you don't, my name is David Barnes, and I'm the RUF campus minister. Um, <clears throat> we haven't said this yet, but a lot of RUF say this around the country, and I do want to make this a part of who we are. At RUF, uh, more globally, so to speak, we like to say that you are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace, and you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. And so maybe you're coming into this room and you don't feel like you're worthy to be here. Um, maybe you don't feel like you're good enough. Maybe you feel like you have to clean yourself up before you can come. Well, let me reiterate, you are never so bad that you're beyond the, the reach of God's grace. And so this is a place for you. At the same time, you may be coming in and you may um, have done everything right since you got to college. Maybe you're brand new or maybe you've been doing this for a while and you did what your parents said, your pastor said, you got plugged into a college ministry, you have Christian friends all around you, you're going to church, you're in the Bible studies, you're going to a quad, and, and it seems on the surface that you're doing all the right things. Well, let me reiterate that you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace, um, that we all come into this room and we are on equal footing that we all are in need. Here's the point. The reason why any of us can say with the moniker that we're a Christian in this room is because God's loving kindness to pursue frail, broken, apathetic, unbelieving, and rebellious hearts. He's pursued us relentlessly by profound grace and mercy. None of us deserve that grace and mercy, but he bestows it anyway. And that's why we're here this evening. I want you to hear that. That's why we're here this evening, to grow into this grace by the Spirit through the reading and the hearing of God's holy word. So if you would, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, um, I would love for you to open up uh, to Matthew chapter 5. As I kind of said last week, um, this semester we're going to be looking at the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And, but, but specifically, first, we're going to look at the Beatitudes and so the way that the Beatitudes kind of structure themselves is Beatitudes of need, and then there's a transition Beatitude of hunger and thirst, which we're going to talk about tonight, and then through that you get the Beatitudes of action. And so it is really particular that Yahweh, right, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, in the second Moses, greater Moses figure, he comes on top of a mountain and he declares the law in another way. And he starts with the original law in Exodus, and he says, I am the Lord your God, and I have taken you out of slavery. I have taken you out of bondage. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Right? The Bible always starts with divine grace, and that grace is what enables and motivates us to obey his commandments, to repent from things that are holding our hearts down and weighing us down. It enables us. God never seeks you to be on your own. He actually gives you the very spirit, the very life, to empower you to change. And that is really what the Sermon on the Mount is. He's speaking to his disciples and he is declaring the law again. And really the Beatitudes, it's really, you know what it is? It's, it's like the topic statement or whatever that we do in papers, you know, high school and college, where we put like the, the theme, the theme statement. That's kind of what the Beatitudes are. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is, is breaking down those Beatitudes in a lot of ways. And so, and so last week, we, we looked at this question, what does, it, what does it look like for humans to truly flourish, right? Remember I said, like, you know, I, I've met with many of you, and, and I would say 9.7% of the time, right, uh, you know, 99.7% of the time, it's often um, 
like, hey, how are you? And I don't get, I'm flourishing. <laughs> I'm in line with God's will, you know, perfectly. I'm flourishing right now. I feel God's peace in my life. I'm doing really well, you know. And, but so, so this age-old question, what does true human flourishing, happiness, blessedness, right? That more Christian word, blessedness, what, is, what does that mean? Well, this is a question that even Greek philosophy has asked for generations, right? Whether it be Stoicism, which says that enduring hardship without display of feeling or complaint, that is the highest version of happiness in this life. Or Epicureanism, where it's the pursuit of pleasure, but in moderation, because if you overindulge, that will lead to suffering. Or its sister, I would say, hedonism, which is also the pursuit of pleasure or self-indulgence, mainly sensual self-indulgence. All ancient moral philosophers sought to also seek to answer this question about what is it that truly makes people happy? And you know what all philosophers get, and I commend them for this, is that oftentimes it has to do with virtue. And it has to do with figuring out principles by which you lay the foundation of your life and then practically you practice those principles in the world. This is kind of Aristotle here. In our culture today, we seek the answer to this question too, don't we? And honestly, whether we know it or not, these, the answer to this question is answered for us in this culture. Right? Think about expressive individualism. I'm going to start with slogans, and then, and then I'm going to talk about what it, what it actually means. Right? What is expressive individualism? We have to think about this, because expressive individualism is pressing in on how we think and how we see and how we read Scripture and how we come to God and how we come to spiritual-like things. But this philosophy, this teaching says this. It says, you be you, man. You do your own thing. You be true to yourself. You follow your own heart, find yourself, be happy, right? That is what the slogans say. And here is what Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor said. He's really known for this book called The Secular Age. It's a beast of a book, but it's fantastic. Um, It's a tome um, and it's seminal work. He calls this the age of authenticity, where he states that we each have our own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own definition of that humanity, talking about this authenticity. And this is against surrendering or conforming to any model from the outside. And what are some of those things, right, by society, a previous generation, or religious or political authorities? Don't listen to those. You can't trust them. So what's key here is this modern philosophy or system of belief or thought, right? Because it's either you're believing in Jesus, you're believing in the Bible, or you're believing another system of thought. There is always going to be a faith statement. You cannot be completely subjective. You have to say, well, I believe at some extent or some time that this philosopher or this argument or this scientific inquiry, it had it right. And there's some statements that you cannot prove without a reasonable doubt. And so the same thing that Christians also say is, well, or, or what's against Christianity is, well, you cannot prove without a reasonable doubt, right? Or without, without some question. But you also can't prove against it either. And so with this system of thought of, of individualism, human flourishing looks like going inward. It looks like searching inside for the answers, finding my deepest self. And whenever I find that self, I express it boldly to the world without any thought edgewise. This is the highest good. The highest good is individual freedom. 
is happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. I'm going to be me. You're going to be you. That is one of the biggest philosophical realities to the challenges of Christianity in your age and in your generation, as well as what you're actually being influenced to believe and to see and to be influenced by. But you may be asking, like, David, why, why does this matter? Well, because history repeats itself. And all throughout history, we've been asking this question about what does human flourishing look like? And even today, we're trying to answer it. But the Bible answers it. And paradoxically, in the Bible, what we have is is this God-man, is Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, majestically stepping on the the scene of history, offering a strange and in many ways a foreign understanding of what it means to flourish as human beings. What does it look like and how do we attain it? But, but think about this. If Jesus is who he says he is, right, he is a philosopher because he's philosophizing, but he's not any less than that. He is a teacher. He is a sage. He is full of wisdom and wise things, but he's not merely that. And if you can only say that he does those things, then you're not reading the text for what it's actually saying. Because Jesus claims to be the son of God. And in this culture and in this context, if you claim to be the Son of God, you're equating yourself with God. That's why he died. He died because he made a statement that he is God. And so he comes with this foreign understanding. But if he is God, doesn't he actually, isn't he the one person who has the right? Because he's the one in whom we've been created. We've been created for him. We've been created through him. He is the cosmic glue who holds all this together. Isn't he the one person who has the right to say, this is what human flourishing looks like? And it's not going to be what you see today. It's going to be different. It's going to be an upside-down kingdom. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're, gonna, we're really just going to look at one because it's the transitional one. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter six, but, or uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. But with that, I'm going to reread 2 through 5 because we'll spend a little bit of time there and then transitioning. So I'm going to read from 2 through 8, and we're going to focus on, on verse 6. So again, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, this is your word, not mine. You are the authoritative agent through your spirit speaking. And I pray what I often do, that we pray to tap into the promise that you say that whenever your word goes out and the authoritative preaching of it and the exhortation and the exegesis and all of those fancy words, we pray that you would use that to nourish, strengthen, and call your people to yourself. Lord, would you do that in this time? We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Well, based on a true story, in 1981, there's an Academy Award-winning movie called Chariots of Fire. 
And there's these two young men named Abrahams and Liddell's, their last names, who were competitively competing for the gold medal in the 1924 Olympics, right? Liddell, on the one hand, was a Scottish, uh, devout Scottish Christian missionary, and he said that his purpose in running was to glorify God, that whenever he, you know, you hit the zone is what we call in sports psychology, whenever you get into the zone, he just felt one with God, and he felt like in that moment he's glorifying God. Right? And on the other hand, Abrahams is an English Jew who he says he runs in order to overcome prejudice. Right? Because at the time, anti-Semitism was really big. And so he ran in order to overcome that prejudice. Whenever these two first came together and they raced together, Liddell beats Abrahams. And Abrahams takes the loss very, very poorly. And he decides to hire a professional in order to help him with his technique and, and his time and to get it better. And so he spends years training and he comes to the Olympics and he actually loses this 200-meter race. And in the in-between of the 200-meter, he had one more race, the 100-meter there's this scene where he's, right, he's like getting a massage because he's trying to get ready to go out and run, but he's, he's talking to his friend and confessing a miscalculation in his life. And he says this, he goes, I've never known true con contentment or fulfillment. Abraham goes on to say, Abraham goes on to say, I am forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is that I'm chasing. He admits being scared and laboring hard day after day. And for what, he says, I will raise my eyes and I'll look down that corridor four, four feet wide and with 10 lonely seconds, I will try to justify my existence. But will I, he says? And he ends by saying, I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm even frightened to win. The first quote that sticks out to me is, I am forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever labored day in and day out, especially being in college, right? Almost, almost kind of doing this thing. I know some of you feel called to go to school. That's, that's beautiful. But almost doing this thing that's almost expected of us. You know, it's like, well, we didn't really have a choice. I went to school and then it only made sense. To, so we, we do this labor day in and day out. You know, what is the purpose? Have you ever asked yourself, what is the purpose of all of this? Have you ever struggled with deep feelings and thoughts of futility? Have you come to the conclusion that the preacher does in the book of Ecclesiastes that says, all is vanity, all is vanity. It's meaningless, it's vapor, right? I love that book. Let me know if you want to look at that book. It's fantastic. All is vanity, right? And then the second quote, I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm afraid to win. Isn't that a profoundly deep thought? I think of it like the dog chasing the car, right? He's chasing the car, and then, it, and then the old saying says, well, what if you actually caught it? What is he going to do with it? <laughs> right? The dog chasing the car, like, what happens if you actually get what you're striving for? And I think this is what he's getting at. Is it going to lead to that fulfillment and satisfaction that you thought was going to be the ultimate quencher? It was going to be the ultimate hunger fixer and the ultimate quencher to our thirst. Is it going to bring the fulfillment and the flourishing that I thought it was? Will those feelings of despair and loneliness and sorrow and mourning and the feelings of tragedy all around us, are those going to go away? I think that's what he was getting at with that. I want you to know this, and I mean this with the depths of my heart, that Jesus meets us in this space. 
with profoundly good news of his kingdom that he is bringing to the world. The good news is that other religions say that you need to clean yourself up and then you need to come to the God, right, uh, to receive whatever it is that you want. You know, God's throughout the time, futility, salvation, whatever it is. This is the only religion where the God comes to his people. And he doesn't come in theory. He comes in this stuff. Blood, veins, oxygen, the very thing that we need to survive. Jesus planted his feet in dirt and dust and sweat and tears and sorrow and pain and rejection and death, or wrongful death, by the way. That is what came to our Savior. That is what came to the person who says, look to me, I am the bread of life. For all who are thirsty and hungry, I will fulfill all of your needs. It is the only religion, the only religion that has the God of the universe taking on flesh and coming to us and dying for our sin to reconnect us back to our Father. So our passage this evening, Jesus gives us two profound truths to wrestle with. Number one, the kingdom's desire. And number two, the kingdom's offer. First, we're going to look at the kingdom's desire. Before we do that, before we really look at uh, verse 6, I'm going to do a quick review of the Beatitudes that we did last week because they really do, you kind of have to go through those and see the transition one, and so it really does set it up. But again, I want to make this clear that the first Beatitudes, I want you to think of those as Beatitudes of need. I think some people come to the Beatitudes and they interpret them as these are the things that are required to be a disciple, right? These are the moral things that you need to do. But what's interesting, again, is the Beatitudes start with Jesus, again, pursuing his people. They start right here with being poor in spirit. So again, I want you to be thinking about what do we believe? What are the things that culture loves and believes and raises to high esteem? What do I need to do to be seen and known and and recognized in our culture and see how countercultural this is that Jesus steps onto the scene of history and he says this, the first thing, right? One of the first things he says is blessed are human flourishing are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then last week, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It is the most strong word in the Greek that he can use to tell us that we are impoverished, that we are bankrupt, meaning there's absolutely nothing that you can do, say, think, be accomplished that will earn any favor with Yahweh. None. That's not bad news. That's really good news. Because that means your record isn't the one he sees. He sees Jesus' record. He sees his righteous record as he looks at you, his new son, his new daughter, as he looks at you whenever we come to faith in him, he sees that. He sees righteousness. There's nothing that we can do. And I want you to hear this too. According to the Bible, we are not just spiritually sick. We don't just need a teacher. We don't just need a sage. We don't just need a philosopher. We don't need somebody to tell us what is good living merely. We need resurrection life. We're not just sick, we are spiritually dead. We need new life. And Jesus comes onto the stage of history and meets humanity and says, I'm here to give you that life. I'm here to offer it to you by giving up mine. By by coming down and taking on human form, I'm, I'm leaving my place of honor so that you can be there. I'm leaving my place of high esteem so that you can be 
highly esteemed by the Father. I'm leaving my identity up there with the Father so that you can have my identity with the Father. That's true rest. That's not bad news. That's good news. By grace, we recognize our need. Just like, uh, I don't know if it was last semester or the semester before, we talked about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in that, the very, the very sum of this was the Pharisee and the tax collector going to the synagogue. The Pharisee is looking at this broken sinner over here and he's saying, thank God I'm not like him. And the tax collector, he beats his chest in sorrow and lament and mourning over his sin. He says, Father, forgive me. I am a sinner. And it tells us that that man went away justified that day. And I want you to hear this. We all are pharisaical in our heart. It is only by the grace and mercy and the loving kindness being pursued, being in pursuit of you and your heart that we come to God beating our chest and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner and I am in need of your grace. So again, that's not a work. <laughs> that's by grace that you're able to beat your chest and say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of you. And so through seeing your poor in spirit, it leads to those who mourn after being driven into ourselves because we do have to see that, right? Oh, oh, think about the opposite here. Our culture says, go inside and find your meaning. Scripture says, go inside to see your poverty. Go inside to see your need. And then be driven outward to a deep sense of sorrow and lament. Because what happens is, whenever the Holy Spirit shows us our, our sin and our failure and our poverty of spirit, it brings us to a proper lament. It brings us to almost to our knees. Because we want to lament the ways that we do fail, but celebrate the ways that Jesus meets us in that failure. So after being driven into ourselves, we need to be driven out. In other words, as God opens up the eyes of the blind, and as he heals the lame, we are the blind, we are the lame. That is us. We begin to discover who we really are. And then we are driven out of ourselves in order to find a solution, right? So we don't look inward, I'm sorry to say, but biblically speaking, the answer is not to look inward. I know that's extremely counterculture, and you're like, David, you're a heretic. But biblically speaking, the very words of God, the one who created you, says looking inward, if you're going to look inward, find your need, and let that drive you outward so that you find a solution that will actually fill you, that will actually bring you rest, that will bring you the righteousness that you seek bring you being known that you actually want to be known. And then inevitably we're going to become meek because that's the way the kingdom works. We see our sin, we lament, we mourn, and now we're driven to a a meekness, a logical kingdom consequence of being driven into ourselves, recognizing, admitting our deep spiritual need and poverty, mourning this reality with sorrow. What does it mean to be in mourning? It means a deep lament and sorrow, extreme sadness over the ways that we fail, not for shame, but for recognizing that we are in need of something outside of ourselves, not deeper in Inevitably, the result is a kingdom humility that shines through our attitude and our conduct. And as we'll see, it's going to manifest itself in a kingdom-oriented action, which is the ones for next week. And of course, we have to reiterate that there are kingdom promises. For theirs, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who? For the poor. For those who mourn, they shall be comforted. And for the meek, they will inherit the earth. 
Y'all, if you read Scripture from beginning to end, it makes perfect, complete sense. Because the world was always meant to be, we are supposed to be co-heirs with God in heaven. Which means we, the, the inheritance was the world. It was the earth. We were going to receive what we needed from our Father. All of those things are yes and amen in Jesus. But also, you have to say, how does this actually make sense? Know the beginning, know the end. So I'm going to briefly read just a couple of verses in Revelation, right? This is where the book ends. The book of Revelation in verse 13 and following, it says, Then the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where do they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Since that's true, therefore... They are before the throne of God. They've been washed clean. They can approach the very throne of the king, the majestic, pure, holy king, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will be protected. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them down, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a beautiful picture of redemption and restoration. Where are we at in the story? Well, we're between Jesus' resurrection, ascension, to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us even in this moment he's at the right hand of the Father interceding through his spoken word to his people. He's interceding for you now. And we're between resurrection and return and Jesus promises that whenever he returns he will restore all things. But guess what? It's not only a future promise. This is a, a big word, eschatological. It means an end time promise. But there's also a present reality. And guess who he chooses to start that through? You and me. That's how much he loves you. That he wants, to, he wants to bring restoration from as far as the curse is found through his image bearers, the ones who rebelled in the first place. You can't tell me that that is not the most poetic, loving, but also the solution to our problem that we created. And then he allows us to be a participant in the solution that he also creates. Which leads me to my transitional beatitude for this evening, which is chapter 5, verse 6. And it says, right, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Right, what exactly is Jesus saying here? Well, we have to take a step back. In order to get a sense of the punch and potency of what Jesus is saying in this statement, we have to lift ourselves up out of this westernized understanding of culture, right, where food and water are readily available to us, right? Like, think about our access to food and water just for a second. Think about the grocery stores. We have things from Eat Well to Gerbs to Snucks. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about, uh, to, right, to, to you name it, to high V. And then it, it continues, we have gas stations on every corner, right, that, that have food, that have water. Maybe not be the best food or water, but we have it. We have access to it. And then on the other corner are the fast food restaurants. And then sprinkled in are just restaurants, just everywhere, right? 
And the list goes on and on. But then on the other hand, you'll get my point here. On the other hand, the original hearer and reader would understand the profound hunger that comes when food is on short supply and an agonizing thirst when clean water is scarce. This was the average Israelites experience that water was hard to get, that they knew days of, of, of no water. I mean, Jesus went 40 days and 40 nights without any food or drink. He knows what it means, that profound hunger. And so imagine if you would, if, if I'm kind of leading you down this path, imagine to take yourself out of the westernized culture. Imagine if you would, that you were um, in a desert, you woke up. It was like a joke. You're like, what happened? I'm in a desert. You've been there for, for days and you've been walking and walking. There's mirages going on. You're beginning to lose your mind. And then by a miracle, you find a road. And off in the distance, you're like, is that a mirage or is that a small town? Right? And it is a small town. It's not a mirage. And guess what happens? Your hunger and your thirst would be so potent that it doesn't matter how tired you are, or malnourished you are, or dehydrated you are, you would run for miles to get to this place. Why? Because there's hope there. Why? Because you know whenever you get there, you'll receive what you truly long for. Your hunger would quite literally drive you to action. Well, in a similar way, Jesus is telling us that true human flourishing is having that deep hunger and thirst for righteousness. That same hunger of being out in the desert for days and you're seeing hope, that same hunger and thirst, he's calling us, what does true human flourishing look like? What does it look like? Jesus is telling us it looks like truly hungering and thirsting like that for righteousness. You're like, David, no. <laughs> no. This is why I don't believe, Right? No. He wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness the way that we would hunger and thirst as if we were in the desert for many days. Righteousness. What a word. Christian word. What does it mean? Here in the context, there's many different meanings of righteousness in the Bible, to be honest with you. There's at least four. Right. It's a great way to saying something because... You know, there's at least four. But there's, let me talk about, so Paul, whenever you read Paul, he's usually talking about the righteousness that Jesus imputes, gives to you through his life, death, and resurrection. That's, an, that's called an imputed righteousness. He gives that righteousness to you. That's not what Matthew's talking about here. Matthew's talking about kind of two things, but probably more because there's an, there's an end time sense to it. But he's talking about a personal righteousness and a social righteousness. What do I mean? Jesus is saying this hunger leads us to see our sin, personal, right? To see our sin and to ask the Spirit to uproot the hold of sin on our hearts. The things, we get something from that sin, don't we? We get something from it. But coming to Jesus and saying, by your spirit, will you uproot this sin so that I could become more like Jesus? This is that big word in Christianity that we call sanctification. All that is is a work of God's grace to allow you to die more and more to those sinful things and to become more and more alive in Christ. That's the big word, sanctification. Seeing our sin, repenting, uprooting, moving in a different direction. Then there's the social righteousness, right? Another thing that goes against our culture, God's people were never individualists. They weren't. God called a people to be his own. 
As God's people, we are not individualists, which means we hunger for God to renew, to restore, to cleanse our societal evils that we see. I've met with many of you. You guys have a, you guys inspire my heart because of how, how much you feel the pain of others, especially on a broad, worldly scale. To be 100% honest with you, I pray that I can feel it even a fraction of how you feel it. I am so inspired by your generation and by how God is working in your hearts because you have such a thirst for social justice. You have such a thirst. You may not say it this way, but for righteousness. You may not say it that way, but you do. You do. You want to see God renew, restore, and cleanse our society of their evils, whether it be mass shootings, tax evasion, cheating, pandemic, war, genocide, betrayal, whatever it may be. You put in what you think or what you see, whatever it is, God calls us to a personal version of that and a societal. And he says, those who hunger and thirst for this, for this righteousness, for repentance of our sin so that we can bring goodness and love and life and the fruits of the Spirit to this world, both individually and socially, that's human flourishing. Because, I, because God's saying, I created you for this. I created you for this. This is how I know you're going to flourish. To put it simply, it's a hunger for a right and restored relationship with God. Look at this. And a deep longing to live rightly before the world and with the world. You know what the, you know what the, the law does in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy? The first four is called the two tables of the law. The first four are this, relationship with God. Have no other gods before me. Don't create any carved images. Do not say my name in, uh, in vain. And then, um, and then keep the Sabbath. That's all our relationship with God. And then the last six are all of our relationship with people because God wants us to love him and love people. It's a hunger for a right and restored relationship with God and with the world. And this hunger that Jesus connects to our flourishing is one where we recognize our spiritual need. We mourn over that reality. We become meek and humble because we see our need. Because anybody in need, right? Think about that AA example from last week. People who go to AA are in need. They're humble. They're quick to admit that they have a problem. They're quick to admit, like what I said, alcohol has become unmanageable. Sin has become unmanageable. They are humbled. They're humbled by the reality of an unmanageable life. And so they seek help, right? They're driven in to drive out. That's exactly how it works. We live into God's kingdom, which makes us hungry for his rule and his reign, both in our personal lives and in the world. Have you ever hungered for God's reign in your life? Have you ever thirsted for his rule and his commandments to be obedient to them? Eugene Peterson said it this way. It's really well said. Scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us, live up to this. Nor does it set out a system of doctrine or teaching and say, think like this and you'll live well. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story. And in telling the invite, live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in a God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. Whenever we're in line with God's will, we are actually flourishing as humans because he's created us to flourish. And so whenever we're in line with his will, even if we disagree with it, even if it doesn't feel good, even if it's not aligned with our personal in-depth beliefs and the things that we think, God is telling us this so that 
we would understand that becoming and maturing as a human being is most aligned with who he is and who we are in, re- in reference to that. I imagine with me a local underdog football team from a small town, right? Uh, they, they begin to win games. They win one, they win another, they win another, they win another, and the town is starting to get a little hyped up. You know, like, oh my gosh, we got a winning team this year, right? Until, until they win so many games, they even went to state, until the reality of the national championship title becomes real. And at this point, this new reality now that the potential for a national championship, that hunger now drives them, right? And so what are they going to do? They're going to start practicing harder. They're going to start meeting together and going over plays and strategy, defense, offense, making sure it's tight. Why? Because the reality now is driving it. And I want you to hear the reality of the kingdom of God piercing, coming to you, is real. That Jesus came, that he took on flesh, that he lived a life that we cannot live. He lived a perfect life in complete obedience to the Father, which means he is the example, not any less than that, so much more than that, he is at the very least the example of a true flourishing human being. Why? Because he obeyed the Father all the way to the point of death and death on a cross. What does it look like for you to obey in such a way that it may lead to some death? It may lead to some death in your life. It may lead to death of sin in your life that you've gotten complacent with. It might lead to death with sin in your life that you've just gotten apathetic to. Well, Jesus didn't come to leave you where you're at. He meets you there, but he picks you up in resurrection life, and he shows you the way of the kingdom because he wants you to flourish. He's not being mean. He's not pointing his finger, saying, how dare you? He's saying, I love you right where you're at, but I love you too much to keep you where you're at. Follow me. My yoke and... and the, 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 the yoke is light according to the burden that you feel. And so I ask you, my what, what are you hungry for? I want you to really think about this. I'm not just talking. What are you hungry for? What drives you to action? What motivates you? What are you thirsting for? Maybe for some of us, what drives us is approval or acceptance of others. Maybe that's classmates. Maybe it's peers. Maybe it's people above us, parents, mentors, pastors. This drive for approval moves us towards really high standards, high expectations for ourselves that we place on ourselves and other people have placed on us, whether we've named it or not. I think we can feel it. I think that's what some of our undergirding anxiety is, is that we put a lot of expectation upon ourselves and others do as well. And so we want to be a high performer so much so that we are crushed by any hint of critique or constructive criticism. And the fear of that leaves us anxious and dissatisfied and scared that people are going to think less of us, that we're not going to be enough. Maybe that's not you. Maybe for others, fear drives you to action. Maybe we're so afraid of failure and not measuring up, again, to this unrealistic expectation we begin to hide. Where do you hide? We all hide. Where do you hide? That's the first thing that Adam did. God came into the garden at his regular time. He says, where are you? And he was hiding because of his shame. 
Maybe you, behind, maybe you hide behind the facade of having everything together and organized and looking very attractive on the outside, making other people wish that they had your life. We hide behind the busyness and the extracurricular activities to build a great resume, while internally we are a tornado of emotion that feels unbearable and isolating at any moment we feel like we're going to break. In fact, we have to start saying no to friends and commitments and community because we're so internally broken from the things, from the pressure, and from this facade of having everything together. We don't want to be found out. And so we isolate. We, we, we hide alone because we're absolutely afraid of what people may think or do if they find out that we're struggling this much. Who's going to reject me? I don't want to be a burden to anyone. So I'm going to do them a favor, and I won't be. So I isolate. Or I just don't talk about my emotions at all. And in fact, you know what? I'm going to be a great listener. Very good listener. Tell me about your problems. I love hearing about yours. That's another way that you actually hide. is because you take on the burdens of others, and that makes you feel better about yourself for a moment. But then you go home and you realize that you're hiding. And you need to be seen and heard and loved too. Maybe for others of you, we hide through different forms of escapism, right? We hide by distracting ourselves. I think they call it doom scrolling on social media. (laughs) Are you even reading anything? You know what it's like. We've all been there. I've been there. I'm in this camp too. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you. Video games, Netflix, we've all been there. And many other entertainments that we look to for right help. Don't we go to these things to help? You know what's so paradoxical to this is it's not helping. It's actually raising your anxiety. It's making you feel more disconnected, right? What happens whenever you get on Instagram? You start comparing. You start, you start getting into the mindset of life is better on the other side. Grass is greener over there. We all fall victim of this endless cycle of shame, of not doing enough, not being enough, which ultimately is the cycle because it drives back to escapism. It's hard to get out of that. But wherever you may find yourself this evening, Jesus sees you. Jesus is speaking to you. And Jesus is pursuing you. Jesus is offering his new kingdom to all who would hear who would internalize, who would turn away, who would repent, right? That word repent is convert. It is to turn away from the things that are promising life that are stealing it, stealing your humanity. Thinking that you're doing something, thinking that you're accomplishing something, it's not all bad, of course, but ultimate, whenever we turn to ultimate things, of course, is what I'm saying. It's not all bad, right? should never do, you know. Um, But like, if we turn it into ultimate things, it will only steal our humanity. We're always left more empty than whenever we came. He's pursuing you. He's offering a new kingdom, and he's, and he's calling you to follow him. Just as he does right before this, he calls, he calls a couple of folks, you know, and they're fishing. He says, come, follow me. You know what they did? They dropped everything. If you, if you read the text close, they just dropped it and just started following him. <laughs> Miracle. It's like they had any choice. <laughs> because whenever grace comes calling, whenever your heart hears the voice of the one in whom has made it, You have no choice, really, because that's what you're created for. Simply put, King Jesus offers a satisfaction that can only be found in him, and that's the second part, right? 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Raise a hand. Who wants to be You don't have to, but who wants to be satisfied? Seriously. If, if I told you to raise your hand, you would all raise your hand because you're being honest. I want to be satisfied. True human flourishing looks like hungering and thirsting. I think I made that word up. Hungering and thirst, hunger and thirsting for after righteousness. And he says, you will be satisfied. How countercultural. This is why the kingdom's upside down, because we have to die to live. But don't forget, our Savior is the one, right? The scripture tells us that just as a seed falls into the ground and it dies to produce more life, the same is true in our lives, that things have to die so that it produces more life. In John 6, 35, Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Wow, what a bold promise. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of our temporal hunger and thirst. Did you hear what I said? Whenever you're hungry in this life right now, whenever that... You've been in class for 17 hours. My water's out. I don't want to get up. It's almost over. I'm so thirsty. Even just that temporal hunger, I want you to know this. Whenever you feel that hunger, it's actually hungering for your Savior. Yes, temporally, the Lord gives you actual food that does actually nourish your body, which is a temple for Him. While at the same time, that initial hunger, it's supposed to actually point you to Him. Think about it. We have to have one thing to survive here. That's oxygen. Isn't that crazy? It's such a simple statement, but if we didn't have oxygen, we couldn't live here. If we didn't have food, we couldn't live here. It's any wonder that the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, in order to point us to himself, he creates hunger and he gives us breath. And he says, I am the breath of life. Something that we have to do. And I am the living water and I am the true bread. Come to me all who are poor and needy. I will give you food and you'll never run out. Keep coming back. You'll never run out. And I will quench that thirst and I'll fulfill every deep desire in you. And yes, there's a sense in which that is a reality now, but there's a sense in which these promises will be ultimately fulfilled whenever Jesus does return. There's not an if. It's a when. He will return, and he will restore all things. And every knee will bow to the name of Jesus, whether you believed or not. It's a reality. But the good news is those who come to him and say, I am in need, and invites them into their heart and says, Lord, I need resurrection life. I am so caught up in my head. And I'm always wondering if I'm enough or am I, am, I, am I annoying to everybody? Am I hurting people, right? You're so insecure in our relationships with other people. Lord, I need you to secure me in Christ. And so the Lord, he pursues us on the on the stage of history, and he says, those who are poor in spirit, come, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. For those who mourn, you will be comforted. For those who are meek, you will inherit the earth. And because those are true, now hunger and thirst for righteousness, for that to come here, which is the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
kingdom people want his kingdom here because they know and understand that his rule is good and righteous and it was created for us to flourish. That kingdom has come. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, these are some profound truths. I confess that to you, that even my own mind, while I'm saying the words, I, I sometimes cannot wrap my head around your beauty, your goodness, your glory, your holiness, and the ways that your Son has taken on flesh to bring this kingdom, to inaugurate a kingdom people, and to pierce this kingdom of darkness once and for all and to conquer it through your life, death, and resurrection. And so, Lord, thank you for calling us to be a part of that. But also, thank you for enabling us to be a part of that. Lord, there's nothing in us that earns your favor. It is declared upon us as beloved children. Lord, would you allow that truth to delve deep into our hearts and souls this evening as we worship in our final song. We pray in the strong name of Christ. Amen.